Let me read this story for you. And I just, I just want you to picture this because this is going to kind of guide our day to day. So I'm going to read this and then, um, and then we'll jump into the uh, full message. So um, we've got some new faces. Glad you guys are here today. And uh, I was about to say anybody watching, but, you know, nobody watching right now. So um, whoever's listening to this later, glad you're here. You should be here in person. But anyway, all right, here we go. Uh, listen to this story. When pummeled by too many thoughts, a long walk would cure me. Martin Laird is the author of this. So when I say me, that's him. When pummeled by many thoughts, a long walk would cure me of the punch drunk feeling of lifelessness. The normal routine led along open fields and not infrequently I would see a man walking his four carry blue terriers. These were amazing dogs, bounding energy, elastic grace and electric speed they coursed and leapt through open fields. It was invigorating just to watch these muscular strengths of freedom race along. Three of the four dogs did this, I should say. The fourth dog stayed behind and off to the side of its owner ran in tight circles. I could never understand why it did this. It had all the room in the world to leap and bound. One day I was bold enough to ask the owner, why does your dog do that? Why does it run in little circles instead of running with the others? He explained that before he acquired the dog, listen to this, it had lived practically all of its life in a cage and could only exercise by running in circles. For this dog to run meant to run in tight circles. So instead of bounding through the open fields that surrounded it, it ran in circles. This event has always stayed with me as a powerful metaphor of the human condition. For indeed we are free, as the psalmist insists, Psalm 123, my heart like a bird has escaped from the stare of the fowler, but the memory of the cage remains. And so we run in tight little circles even while immersed in open fields of grace and freedom. What happens when you are placed in the right environment is determined by how free you are from the inner person that was formed in the wrong environment. One more time. What happens when you are placed in the right environment is determined by how free you are from the inner person that was formed in the wrong environment. This is why last week's message was really crucial. I encourage you, no, it's not on the podcast, so just take my word for it. Um, God has led us into the vast spaces of the kingdom with limitless discovery and opportunities to become, yet... If we are still in the frame of mind that is caged in by whatever cage we found ourselves in before, we'll simply run in tight circles. The cage is what many have called the fall. It's humanity making an image for itself that it was only ever supposed to inherit and reflect. The struggle for many of us is not where we are, it's who we are. We like to make everything in our lives about where we are, that is, external circumstances, rather than the reality that most everything in our lives truly revolves around who we are. We like to make everything in our lives, good or bad, about something happening externally. So you might be in a bad mood all the time and you might say it's because of your job. Right? Or you might be in a bad mood all the time and you might say it's because of what happened to me last week or whatever the case may be, right? But at the end of the day, you being in a bad mood is not an issue of your job. It's an issue of who you are within. Because I know a lot of people who are in jobs that aren't fun and are just as happy as they would be in another job. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's what I talk about all the time. We, we like to think that the grass is greener on the other city Side, right? The grass is greener at the other job. The grass is greener in the other relationship. 
And the, what determines the grass being green is not what field of grass you're in. It's how you tend to the grass that you are on. So you might jump into a field that's solid green, but if you don't water the field like you didn't water the field you were in before, guess what's going to happen next summer? It's going to die. You know what I'm saying? Y'all good? Y'all quiet. So I don't know if that's good or bad. How often have you prayed for God to deliver you from something externally that you believed was stealing life from you only to find that when God delivered you from it, you were still lacking life? Maybe this isn't anybody in the room. That could be one of numerous things. But the point is, we always look externally to find fulfillment that is really only found internally. And here's the best part. This is the best part. The thing that fulfills us internally is already fully there. Amen, brother. St. Augustine says in his writings called Confessions, he says this, Augustine, as the scholars say, Augustine, if you're in the South, says this, you, God, were within me and I was outside of myself. In his writing in Confessions, which is a a really interesting piece of writing, um, he essentially goes through and says, I've been searching for God everywhere, but you, God, I realize, were actually within me and I was outside of me looking for external things, right? Uh, Theophan, the recluse, as he is called um, by scholars, says this, you must descend from your head to your heart At present, your thoughts of God are in your head, and God himself is, as it were, outside of you. Why? Because he's in the heart. And they use the heart language, especially back during this this age, I believe the fourth century, but don't quote me on that. Um, The heart as the inner, inner person, okay? So he says, you must descend from your head to your heart. At present, your thoughts of God are in your head, but because God is within you are, as it were, in a place where God is outside of you. You're in your head, but God is in the heart. Therefore, you're outside of who you are. Okay, really deep. So your prayer and other spiritual exercises remain exterior. Whilst you are in your head, thoughts will not easily be subdued, but will always be whirling around like snow in winter or clouds of mosquitoes in the summer. The point is, The riches of God are within you and I, but God feels distant because we are living life from our head rather than our heart. We are living externally in rather than internally out. Is this too much? Y'all lying. Y'all wouldn't tell me if it was. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? And the image of God is Jesus. Hebrew 1.3 says this, He, Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by His powerful world. word. Excuse me. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, Do you not realize about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Okay? So, I know this is a lot. You don't have to remember any of that. I said all that to prove this, that if Jesus is the image of God and Jesus is in you, where is the image of God? It's in you. And who are you at your most pure state? This is what Genesis 126 says. God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. So your true identity is in the image and likeness of God. And that image and likeness is Jesus. And Jesus is within. Therefore, to become who you really are, You need to look within to find Jesus, and in finding Jesus, you find your image and likeness. All right, that's way too much, so let me me bring it a little bit. All right, here we go. I feel like a teacher. All right, who are you? You're the image and likeness of God. So human, 
image likeness of God. Okay, that's what human is. So what is the image? Anybody? Jesus. Thank you, Evan. That was Evan, right? Yeah. All right. And then where is Jesus? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is where? In you. So location of Jesus is in or within. Okay? So all that being said, how do we get back to our identity? Well, here's what you have to do. Ready for a lot of philosophy? Here we go. Our identity is in the image and likeness of God. That's where we need to end up. Okay. So the first question we have to ask is, what is that image? It's Jesus. So if we realize that the image is Jesus, the next question we have to ask in order to get back to who we really are is, where is Jesus? Because in finding Jesus, you find your right identity. So where is Jesus? Within. Now, here's the problem. Religion has told us that everything that makes our identity in the image and likeness of God is about what we do externally. So people spend their whole lives doing a bunch of stuff to be religiously pure and religiously right and follow all the rules, and they never find who Jesus is because Jesus is within. And so they instead begin to make a Jesus or a God in their own image, thinking that they have found what it means to look like God, which is to do this and 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 completely miss that the image and likeness of God is already in us. In fact, it was in us before we were ever born, before we were ever a thought. He was in us and we were in him. That's what incarnation is. Okay, y'all, does this explain stuff? Okay, this isn't the whole message, but I'm just trying to get this part right here. That's, that's about a master's level right there of what you just got. So go ahead and I'll print y'all off a certificate at the end. Um, this is the message. This is the message of the incarnation. Your true identity is the image and likeness of God. Therefore, to become who you really are, we need to look within and find Jesus. In the incarnation, God has become us. Incarnation is the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? Okay. So in that, God has become us. He has embodied everything required of us. He is God's expressed image, and in becoming God's image, he has simultaneously become humanity in its entirety. That's a big statement. If Jesus is the image of God, the expressed image of God, and who is humanity? the image of God. Therefore, if Jesus is fully God, yet is the expressed image of God, what does that statement say? That Jesus is both God, the image, and humanity, the image. That's incarnation. Good? Okay. In speaking about the Sermon on the Mount, Karl Barth, scholar from Princeton, Dale Allison says this, the first gospel is about a figure, Jesus, who imaginatively and convincingly incarnates his own moral imperatives. Jesus embodies his own moral imperatives. Jesus embodies his speech. He lives as he speaks and he speaks as he lives. And this, this hit me big this week. If Jesus is us and we, through Jesus, are like God, when Jesus speaks what religion makes into rules, he's speaking that twofold. One, as God giving humanity a declaration in how to live in grace, but then two, as humanity, he is speaking as the fulfillment of the very thing that he gave a command to. So he says, do not be angry. And as a fully human person, guess what Jesus lived out his entire life? Hate, excuse me, not be angry. He says, do not hate, right? He lives out not hating anyone. You see this? He said this. 
He said, um, Moses says, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't lust after someone else. And if you do, you've committed adultery in your heart. So that's the command that he gives. But not only does he give the command, as fully human, he lives out that command to fulfillment, which is why he says this, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. John says that Jesus is the word. And the word was the law and the prophets all encompassed. So John is saying, Jesus is the law and the prophets. And Jesus comes and says, I haven't come to do away with that. I came to fulfill it. Well, if Jesus is the law and the prophets, and he's also the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that is what incarnation is. Therefore, what Jesus teaches and what even the Old Testament teaches is not a bunch of list of rules for us to get to a place where we are the righteousness of God. What the Old Testament and the New Testament combined teach is how we can follow a man who has found fulfillment in all of it and all of it found fulfillment in him. This is huge. In everything, especially in the law, God does not give the law before he delivers the Israelites. He delivers the Israelites and then gives them the law. To say your deliverance has nothing to do with how well you keep the law. The law comes in to teach you how to live as those who have already been delivered. So Jesus doesn't ask something of us. He hasn't already and firstly embodied himself. If he's calling us, for example, to take up our cross and follow him, It is on the basis that he has already taken up his cross and our cross, seen it through to the end to resurrection life and followed it. Do you say, take up your cross and follow me? What gives Jesus, what gives Jesus the authority to tell us to take up our cross and follow him? The fact that he's already taken up the cross he's asking us to take up and finished it. He died in our place. His cross, right? represented all of humanity being made right with God. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, you're taking up a cross that's already been completed. This is huge. Therefore, the call to pick up your cross and follow is to simply seat yourself in Christ as he has seated himself in us. That is union. That I am in the Father, that you are in me, and I am in you. John 14 is what we just read. So, To break out of the inner cage and be wild again, we must first lay down the notion that we must change in order to become. A dog who has been locked up in a cage his whole life doesn't need to become a dog again, as if he is no longer a dog because he was in a cage. It's a lot, right? The issue is not whether or not the dog is a dog. He doesn't need to become something. He is already that which he needs to become. Rather, he needs to be trained to believe that who he really is with all of its natural instincts to explore and wonder is actually right. He doesn't need to become something new. He needs to find permission to be what he has actually always been. Restriction has been his training, and now the restriction needs to be laid down for unrestricted freedom. Likewise, we don't need to perform external tasks to become some new identity that's more righteous and therefore more like Christ. We need to simply find permission to live without restriction again and trust our natural instincts, which know who they are, and are reinforced by the fact that Christ has made his home within them. I'm going to read this one more time because I've said a lot over the past five minutes. We do not need to perform external tasks to become some new identity that's more righteous and therefore more like Christ. We need to simply find permission to live without restriction again and trust our natural instincts, which know, our natural instincts, know 
who they are and are reinforced by the fact that Christ has made his home in them. For example, you could go to an atheist who, has, who has, wants nothing to do with God, and if they're barreling 100 miles an hour into a transfer truck, do you know who they're going to call out on? God. Why would they do that? Because something on the inside knows that if I am in trouble, there is one I can call on and one who will answer, and it is the one that you could spend your entire life explaining away. But everything in your DNA knows I was fearfully and wonderfully made by the hands of a creator, Yahweh. In fact, atheism is really interesting because in order to be an atheist and not believe in God, you first have to believe there is a God to not believe in. Okay, so, right? I mean, okay. So, let me read this. This is in uh, Bonhoeffer. And uh, if you didn't get anything I just said, it's okay. That's not the whole message. Here's what I have to do. Before I give you something that might challenge how you grew up, okay, uh, I first have to give you a ton of scripture and a ton of background so no one can leave here saying anything heretical happened in this place, okay? So everything I just did was all the foundation for what we're talking about. So, uh, so when you leave here... Um, there's nothing, I'm clean in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. So, uh, if you ever wonder why I do that, that's, that's really the big reason. Let me, let me read this. Uh, this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, when the world began, God created Adam in his own image as the climax of his creation. He wanted to have the joy, God, of beholding in Adam the reflection of himself. And behold, it was very good. God saw himself in Adam. Here, Here, right from the beginning, is the mysterious paradox of man. That man is created a creature and yet is destined to be like his creator. Created man is destined to bear the image of uncreated God. This is big stuff. Adam is as God. His destiny is to bear this mystery in gratitude and obedience toward his maker. But the false serpent persuaded Adam that he must still do something to become like God. He must achieve that likeness by deciding and acting for himself. Though this cho- or excuse me, through this choice, Adam rejected the grace of God, choosing his own action. He wanted instead to unravel the mystery of his being for himself to make himself what God has already made him. That was the fall of man. Adam became as God in his own way. This is what we talked about a little bit last week. But now that he has made himself God, he no longer had a God. He ruled in solitude as a creator God in a God-forsaken, subjected world. But the riddle of human nature was still unsolved. With the loss of the godlike nature God had given him, man had forfeited his destiny of being, which was to be like God. In short, man had ceased to be man. He must live without the ability to live. Herein lies the paradox of human nature and the source of all our woe. Since that day, the sons of Adam and daughters of Adam in their pride have striven to recover the divine image by their own efforts. The more serious and devoted their attempt to regain the lost image and the more proud and convincing their apparent success, the greater their contradiction to God. This is, this is, do y'all hear this? The more serious and devoted their attempt to regain the lost image, the more proud of convincing their apparent success, religion, the greater their contradiction to God. Their misshapen form, modeled after the God they have invented for themselves, grows more and more like the image of Satan, though they are unaware of it. The divine image which God in his grace has given to man is lost forever on this earth. But God does not neglect his lost creature. 
He plans to recreate his image in man to recover his first delight in his handiwork. Now, I'm going to keep reading this. I got a little bit more, but you need to hear this. And then we're going to read a little bit from Athanasius too. He is seeking man, or God, excuse me. God is seeking in it his own image that he may love it. But there's only one way to achieve this purpose that is for God out of sheer mercy to assume the image and form of fallen man. As man can no longer be like the image of God, God must become like the image of man. But this restorative, or excuse me, this restoration of the divine image concerns not just a part, but the whole of human nature. It's not enough for man to simply recover his right ideas about God or to obey his will in the isolated actions of his life. No, man must be refashioned as a living whole in the image of God. His whole form, body, soul, and spirit must once more bear that image on the earth. Since God, or excuse me, such is God's purpose, last part, I promise. Such is God's purpose and destiny for man. His good pleasure can rest only in his perfect image. An image needs a living object and a copy can only be formed from a model. That's, that is huge. A copy of the image can only be formed from the original model. Either man models himself on the God of his own invention. This is so cool. Or the true and living God molds the human form into his image. There must be a complete transformation, a metamorphosis, if man is to be restored to the image of God. How then is that transformation to be effected? The only way is that God sends his son. That, okay, let me explain this for a second, because I don't think anybody's got it. Bonhoeffer describes what happens in Genesis 3, the, the fall, you know. Took a bite of the fruit. This is what scholars call the human condition is a result of Genesis 3. It's man wanting to make for himself what God had already made. Okay, This is part of what, what we call the great delusion. I've used this language many times before. That we set out to make what is already made. Why do we do this? Why do we toil about making knockoff versions of what is already perfect, that is our innate identity. Why do we do this? I believe it's because we lack the trust that Christ is actually life. I believe that we don't believe that God is enough. We have no reason for not believing this, but in our attempt to fill our lack of trust, we set out on a journey to make a life for ourselves that already exists. And the danger is many of us have done this for so long, we don't even recognize it anymore. And that is sin. It's making and living in what God has already made. So what was the cure? What was God to do with this? According to Bonhoeffer, the cure was for God out of sheer mercy to assume the image and form of fallen man. As man can no longer be the image of God, God must become like the image of man, and the word became flesh. What was God to do? I'm going to read this in a second, and I'm almost done. What was God to do? When we journeyed into a God of our own making, and us, in our delusion, created distance from the original image that we were called to bear, what was God to do? Was he to allow us to go into complete uncreation, delusion, and corruption, or was God to become that which we had made in order from the inside out to redeem it? This is love that Christ loved us first. Huh? 
that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? So the incarnation is God has become our broken mess so that our broken mess could be made whole again. Here's the problem, and this is what the message is about today. The problem is, number one, we still see our broken mess. Problem number one, you are not broken. I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care what you cry about at night. I don't, because I do the same. I don't care what you're worried about. I don't care what you're depressed about. All of that stuff, what is real on the inside of you is wholeness. So you're not going to spend the rest of your life trying to be whole. That's what religion says to do. You need to spend your days trying to release yourself into the freedom of being just what you really are, which is whole. The minute he said it is finished, you and I were made whole before we were ever born. And what happens in our life is the enemy, because he has no authority, because he has no more say in anything, because he's just a little cockroach that's right under our foot, right? Because of that, the enemy will spend the rest of our lives trying to get us into the place where Adam and Eve were in the story of Genesis 3, where even though they are just like God, they buy into the lie that there is still something to do to be like God. And so we'll get in this rat race, we'll get in this wheel and we'll run and we'll run and we'll run and we'll run and we'll never go anywhere because that's what religion is. It is nothing but a spinning wheel that makes you think you're going somewhere and you're not actually moving at all. You're tired, you're burned out, you have no breath anymore, and you haven't gone anywhere. And what Jesus does is he steps in and says, get off of the wheel. And most of us don't want to do it because we were told our effort on the wheel is what makes us what we're supposed to be. And so it doesn't even feel right for us to rest. It feels wrong. It feels wrong for us to look in the mirror and say, that is what God looks like. No, because brother, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me, let me read something for you, just, just as a reminder this morning. Here we go. You ready for this? Y'all never heard this in church growing up. <clears throat> here, here we go. This is, this is Romans 3. And um, man, how much did no, I'll just read this. Okay. The righteousness, let me, let me, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23, favorite verse of everybody. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, period. Huh? Let me tell you something. People like to say, people like, one, people like to throw around the heretic thing all the time. It is, just to help you, it is, it is her, literally the definition of heresy to put a period there. Because that is not in any of the text. It's not even in your Bible right now. In your Bible, none of your Bibles have a period there. It's a semi, semicolon. Now, if I'm talking to you and I'm like, hey, last week we went to a football game and it was awesome. And then we... Huh? You'd be like, then what? What are you talking about? You didn't finish your sentence. Yeah, I did. Right? It's crazy. So let me read the sentence to you. There's no distinction. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith period. There's your period. There's your period. Huh? Brother, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace gift. Huh? So why don't we finish the sentence? Because if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you've got something you've got to do to get there. But if all have been justified by the grace gift, all you've got to do is simply embrace what is real, which is you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In him is life. 
Nothing exists apart from him, but all things exist in him. I mean, this is, this is major stuff, right? So you and I were told that we were just a bunch of sinners. Problem is the New Testament says you were, you're not anymore. Now you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, why, why weren't we told that? Because people don't tithe that they believe they're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They tithe that they believe their tithe is going to get them more righteous. Ironically, we don't teach that, and our giving percentage is higher than any church in town. And I'm not saying that because of anything I'm doing. I'm saying that because I believe if you can understand you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and you can trust in the love that was shared over you before you ever knew what love was, then you're going to respond in a love gift. I mean, like, this is insane that we have built religion and religion and religion over keeping people in their dark, infested mess without telling them that what the gospel is is not there's a way out. The gospel is Jesus brought you out and now your feet are on solid ground. He put a new song in your mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's the gospel. Lord, help me. All right. This is what St. If you need some proof, more proof, this is what St. Athanasius says. He says, we've spoken in part as far as was possible and as far as we were able to understand the cause of his, Jesus's bodily manifestation. Now listen to this. That it was not for another to turn what was corruptible, you and I, to incorruptibility except the Savior himself, who in the beginning created the universe from nothing, and that it was not for another to recreate again in the image of human beings, except the image of the Father. And that it was not for another to raise up the mortal to be immortal, except our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself. And that it was not for another to teach about the Father and destroy the worship of idols, except the Word who arranges all things and is alone the true and only begotten Son of the Father. But since what is required from all still had to be rendered, for as I said earlier, it was absolutely necessary to die, and for this in particular, he sojourned among us. For this reason, after the demonstrations of his divinity from his works... He now offered the sacrifice on behalf of all, delivering his own temple to death in the stead of all in order to make all not liable to and free from the ancient transgression and to show himself superior to death, displaying his own body as incorruptible, the first fruits of the universal resurrection." St. Athanasius, early church father, who gave us Trinitarian theology. He died for Trinitarian theology. Athanasius fought against the popular, what was called Arianism. Arianism was the popular belief in the church at that time. Arianism was a belief that Jesus was created by God, but he wasn't divine. That he was really good, but he wasn't God. St. Athanasius spent his entire life proclaiming the truth that yes, Jesus was God. Okay? And he died before his beliefs even took root in the church. He died with his belief being the one that nobody thought was actually good. He never saw the fruit of it. And here he is in his writing, one of the most famous writings of, of church history of all time on the incarnation saying, what happened in this man who was fully God, who was the word, who was the new Moses, etc.? what happened in him? Earlier, he says, when man, I said it earlier, when man went into, um, he calls, he doesn't call it uncreation, he calls destruction. When man was going into destruction, what was God to do? What was he going to do? He had three, he had two options. Either let them go into corruption, but in doing so, he would say of himself that there was something he could not do, save man. He would show limit on himself to allow man. Okay, so if that's not the case, what was God to do? But send his son become that which was going into destruction and from the inside turn the lights on. So how do we become wild again? How do we become, in this you know, example, the dog who, when released into an open country, runs wild and explores. 
How do we regain our pure image and likeness state again? I'm going to read this in, uh, hopefully, good grief, by now you're in Galatians 2. And I've only got two verses, actually one and a half verses for you, so you can breathe. Um, 19b, and, uh, and then I'll go into 20. This is what it says. I have been, this is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The alternate translation is, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, or excuse me, I live by faith of the Son of God, as if that, and I believe it's the more accurate translation, the faith that comes from the Son of God. But either way, Paul is saying, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So how do we recover our original wild identity again? We die. Not our physical death, as many like to believe, as if when you die, you're going to float away into a distant heaven that's 10 billion light years out in space, and you're going to get there. And when you walk up to the gates, Peter's going to be there. Don't know why Peter's going to be there, but for some reason, Peter's going to be sitting at the gates. And uh, apparently the rock of the church, that kind of sounds like pastoring, actually. Like in one season, you're the rock of the church, and the next season, you're the secretary. So that sounds a lot like pastoring, actually. But um, that was a joke. So anyway, so you get to heaven, 10 billion light years out of, out of space. Um, I watched... Uh, uh, the um, Loki, the show on Disney Plus. None of y'all probably care about that, but I was watching this week, preparing for the new Marvel movie coming out. And anyway, as I was watching this, um, they show this this scene of them like blowing through this multiverse, like in this all these lights and stuff. And I was like, that is legitimately what most Christians believe happens to them when they die. It's like going through the multiverse into wherever heaven is. You know what I'm saying? And um, and so anyway. But that's what we believe. We believe we're going to float away 10 billion miles out in outer space, and then we're going to get to heaven. Peter's going to give us our diaper and our harp, and he's going to say, you're assigned to cloud, you know, 100 billion A, and we're going to go over, we're going to sit on the cloud, we're going to spend the rest of our days, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. That sounds awful to me. That sounds so, you know what I mean? Good Lord, that sounds terrible. Um, That's what we believe. Um, And so anyway, and because we believe that, we believe that the way we get to life is, is to physically die. And when you die, you'll be in glory. Or glory's in you. Amen. You know, right? right? When, bro, when the blessed hope of our the blessed hope of our salvation is the rapture. That's the blessed, nope, the blessed hope. Paul says, this is the blessed, uh, Christ in you. Huh? So what do I mean when I say die? Die to what? The person that we made in whatever image we thought we needed to present to the world and to God. And then once we do that, we live. Live to what? The person that God made while you were in your mother's womb, Psalm 139, 13. The person who God knew intimately before we were ever formed, Jeremiah 1, 5. That's what he tells Jeremiah. He says, before you were formed, I knew you intimately. Huh? You were fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And people have the craziness to live like they don't have any purpose in the world. I know it can feel like, listen, let me just be honest with you. I know what it feels like to think that your purpose, no one cares about. Just be 100% cards on the table. I know what that feels like. However, that does not change the fact that you have immense purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know what it feels like. Get die off of here before some of y'all take a social media picture. Um, I know, I, know what, I know what it feels like to feel like what you're doing sometimes feels like a waste of time. In the South, with a bunch of brothers and sisters that grew up in a church that told them, basically, 
just hold on until you die and you'll be good. And do this and this and this and tithe and become a member and all this other stuff and then you'll be good. And I know what it means to stand up and preach a message that says you don't have to wait till you die and then be called a heretic for it. So You know what I'm saying? Like I know what it feels like. And I'll say that for me. For you, that might feel like this. You might feel like you've been chasing things that the Lord has called you to and it hasn't done what you thought it would do that you haven't had the support that you thought you would have. Maybe you're in a, uh, I don't know, a job. Maybe you're in a career. Maybe you're in a class at school. Maybe you're in a friend group that it feels like something in your life feels worthless. It feels pointless. Like, is this even what I need to be a part of? Is this even what I need to be doing, et cetera? We were knit together by the hands of God in our mother's womb. Let me tell you something. God doesn't take the time to knit something together if it's meaningless. Like you, you have grand purpose in your life, but you'll never realize the fullness of that purpose unless you learn to dive deep within and find Jesus waiting. You can search your entire life externally to find Jesus and you'll see glimpses. But until you get to, this is why prayer is so important. Prayer is not begging God to do things externally. That might be the case. Like we're praying for certain things in the church, for example. But the primary, this is why I'm reading this book on contemplative prayer. To contemplate means to simply think for a long time. It means to be quiet, right? And from the very beginning of the church, the primary means of prayer was contemplative prayer. And they would go out in the wilderness or go out in the woods or wherever they were, and they would sit for hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, in complete silence. And the goal of it was not some, you know, crazy, you know, I'm going to center myself with Mother Earth or whatever. That, it's not that, okay? No, the goal was to center yourself around that which is within. It was to get the noise out and seat yourself in reality, right? So what are you worried about? Because nine times out of 10, what you're worried about and what I'm worried about is not even real. Maybe, I'll, all right, this is what I do. Maybe y'all don't do this. I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll take their reaction and then I'll go home. And as I'm sitting at home one night, I'll start thinking, man, they, I don't know if they liked what I had to say. And then that'll lead to, I don't know if they like me. And then that'll lead to, they're leaving the church. And then that'll lead to, I don't even know if they believe in God anymore. You know what I'm saying? Maybe, am I the only one that, I do that all the time. Am I the only one that does that? Um, or if somebody says, hey, we need to meet. Immediately, wrongly, my assumption is great. You know what I'm saying? And let me tell you something, almost 100% of the time, almost 100% of the time, none of that is real. None of it's real. Somebody did that to me last year. They said, we, we need to meet. I started getting that knot in my stomach, you know what I mean? And they handed us a check for $20,000. I kid you not, last year. Huh? So, I mean, so, so this, is, this is what I'm talking about. We need to die to whatever this external belief is that we've got to form an image. You don't need to form an image. You need to just simply be the image that is within, right? If, if you, well, how do I look like God? Just be yourself. That's what God looks like. You know what I'm saying? I mean, honestly, just be yourself. That's what God, uh, Angela, when you're praying this morning, I had this thought as you were praying. Um, I love like the, the language that you use in your prayer. And, uh, and anyway, but I was thinking as I was up there, I was like, it, it can be in that spot so easy to be like, okay, what do I need to pray? What's the like right words to say? What's the like right, you know what I mean? And instead of just, you know, doing all that, you step up and you just pray like you, you know what I'm saying? And in that moment, you're praying most authentically what Christ is praying within by simply being yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? And so even with me, with preaching, I could get up here and do one or two things. I could preach what I think you want to hear, which is how to be happy and how to be rich and how to be all that other stuff, right? Okay. Or I could teach you what it means to be human. And if you can figure out what it means to be human and actually taste it and see, suddenly you'll be happy. Practically, this means laying down the external pursuit of life and begin looking within. What does an internal pursuit of life look like? Isaiah, you can hop up here, man. 
What does an internal pursuit of life look like? What does it mean to look for God within rather than without? What does it mean that life is actually already within you, nothing left for you to do in order to attain it, but to simply embrace it? What does that mean? This is what, and I'm going to butcher this guy's name, so y'all forgive me, but it's Evegruis, Evegruis of Pontius defines prayer. This is what he says. He defines prayer as communion with the mind of God. That's awesome. What is prayer? Communion with the mind of God. It's taking your thoughts and joining them with your heart. Remember what I talked about earlier about the journey from the heart? Praying is taking your thoughts and marrying them with what is in your heart. The most effective way that you or me could pray is not in our words, but in our contemplation. When John says in John 1 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he uses the Greek word, ide, ide, for behold. What's interesting about this word, it's only used one time in the entire New Testament and it's right here, ide, behold. It means to see deeply. In English, we would say this, don't miss this. Behold. To behold is to contemplate. Beholding the Lord is how we find our way back home. It's how we get back to our center where we know and are fully known, where we are who we are, is beholding. That's what I did this entire message to get to this last point, that you in your most pure state will be sustained there and you'll make it there by simply beholding the Lord. That's what it means to contemplate. Like if you're like, man, how do I get into uh, contemplative prayer? You don't have to take five hours, all right? You could sit and maybe for three minutes, get everything out, don't even play music, just clear everything out. And here's what this looks like. Mute your phone and you sit, you close your eyes, and then you just start to be so present that you begin to notice things in your environment you've never noticed before. So we did this Tuesday night. So it's like this, you close your eyes. Actually, let's do this for a second. Everybody close your eyes. Isaiah, hold on one second. Everybody, see, it's gonna be really weird because this is exactly my point. Okay, so close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. All right, now we're not gonna take a few minutes because you know we're towards the end of the service, but I just wanna want give you an example of this, okay? So contemplative prayer, you close your eyes and you start to feel, for example, the air, what does the air feel like in the room? For some of you, freezing, right? But what does the air feel like? What are some of the smells that you smell? What does the carpet feel like on your feet? What does the chair feel like? Don't nobody tell me, I already know. Like what is your inside world? As you're hearing this message, like what, what are you feeling on the inside? Are you feeling like nervous? Are you feeling, you know, excited? And then if you're at home, like what are some of the sounds that you're hearing outside? Are you hearing birds? Maybe cars going by? For me, my daughter playing maybe. My cat on the counter for the 10 millionth time. You, but all of this stuff, now you can open your eyes and you can play now. Thanks, Isaiah. Okay, so what just happened in that moment, Jesus, remember what I said, all things, Colossians 1, exist in and through and for Christ, right? So the lie of the enemy is to detach us from our lives to the point where we live distracted and most of the time we live distracted because we're looking ahead. 
okay? So I struggle, for example, with living in the moment because I'm looking ahead days and weeks and months and years, making sure what I'm doing today is fulfilling what I want to happen in years, right? And so the way that the enemy will allow us to not live in our, you know, identity, in our purpose, is to distract us with things that everything around us says is actually good. What's your 10-year plan? You know what I'm saying? And it's not a bad thing to have a, like to pay up, for example, I would love to pay off our house in the next 10 years, which would be early, right? So, so there's some things you need to do in the, pro I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is when you begin to live life detached from being present and not just being present, I mean from being present. Like what would happen if you went a few weeks and, and didn't every dead moment of the day didn't just start going pew, 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 God forbid, you know, like, Lord, huh? What would happen? Like, so it's, I think it's been, a, it's been over a month now that I've been on, I haven't been on social media and uh, I, feel, I feel free. You know what I'm saying? But it's not just like, we don't know how to be present. We don't know how to talk to people anymore. We don't know how to be around people anymore. You see, so so as, the, as humanity has become more detached from each other, guess what's happened to the church? It's declined. And what's increased is depression and suicide and anxiety and medication for all of that stuff and eating disorder. All that stuff is exploding. The church is decreasing and community is decreasing at the same time. And I believe that there is some connection to an inability to be present and just know and be known there's a connection between an inability to do that and us living in fear. This is what John also says. He says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love cast out all fear. How do you live in perfect love? It's by finding who you really are because who you really are is him. Beholding the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, can you imagine this? They've been praying year, I'm almost done. They've been praying years and years and years and years and centuries for the Messiah to come and set them free. And John, Jesus is walking his way. John looks at the crowds in the wilderness and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos is the, is the Greek. Behold, like when, you know what I mean? When's the last time we did that? When's the last time? Cause we'll do worship services and we'll do, you know, we'll do all this stuff that's, that's external and loud and out there and all that stuff. When's the last time you just simply were? When's the last time you just beheld? When's the last time you went in your room, shut the door, turned off all the music, turned off all the phones, turned off all the stuff that you have going on in your life, and you just were. You beheld the Lamb of God. The answer to, um, listen, the answer to your anxiety, the answer to your depression, the answer to your worry, the answer to your fears, the answer to your lack of faith, the answer to your unfulfillment where you are. The answer to you hating your job, the answer to you hating school, the answer to you hating uh, your relationships around, all that stuff, the answer is within and beholding the Lamb of God. If you don't believe me, try me. The answer to all of it is beholding. And here's the lie. Religion told us the answer to all that stuff is external. For example, for my whole entire life, we told people growing up in youth group to not look at pornography everybody was looking at pornography. And if we're being honest, most people still are. And I'll say that to like, that's, that's not, I'm not like throwing daggers, okay? Not, but let's be real. And here's what we said. We said, stop doing that. And do you know what happened? Every one of those kids, every one of them went home and they wrote on a sticky note, I will not do this again and they put sight blockers on and they got a flip phone and they threw their computer. I had one kid, uh, I remember in school that uh, threw his computer out the window of the second floor so it broke so he couldn't look at. 
You know what I'm saying? And then guess what? He got a new phone, right? So we all the, and they went home and they were like, I'm not going to do this. 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 And then guess what happened? They did. And when they did, do you know what said, what was screaming on the inside of them? I'm worthless. Because we told them their worth was in them not doing this. We at no point had a conversation about why they're doing it. And typically, typically, there is a brokenness on the inside of them that fears rejection, that fears being let down by other people. So instead of being intimate with real people that comes with the fear of rejection, they instead choose an intimacy that has no possibility of rejection. So the answer to the pornography issue is not people stopping looking at pornography. The answer is fixing the brokenness on the inside that fears other relationships and rejection. And if you can fix that, suddenly, guess what? You don't need pornography. It's like this. I said this last week. I had a near infection back in December. First one since I was a little kid. If I ever, I don't even know if I had one when I was a little kid. Did I have some? A couple. And um, so I had two options. I could take Tylenol until my brains melted. And guess what? I wouldn't be in pain. I wouldn't be in pain. But on the inside, an infection would begin to spread until it went way beyond an ear infection. Or I could take what was forced on me because I didn't want to take it, but an antibiotic, right? And fix the sickness. And what happens? Listen, what happens when the sickness is fixed? There's no pain. So what religion does is teach you how to manage your symptoms. What the gospel does is cures the sickness. You can work your tail off and do the symptoms. I mean, this is all throughout history. There's been, there's been uh, monks all throughout history that have castrated themselves so that they don't do things they shouldn't be doing. So you, 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 can, you can take care of the symptoms or you can behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and that's what I'm talking about today. We will run in circles like a dog who's been caged up our whole lives without even knowing it. And we need to be free. And the way we get free is to find Jesus within. Y'all bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord, I know this was a lot today. Um, but I believe I gave exactly what you wanted me to give. And so I just want to ask this of anybody so I can just pray over you real quick. Nobody's looking around. Um, is there anybody in the room that you feel like there are some things that you need to break out of the cage from? Um, it could be little. It could be just worry. It could be fear. It could be whatever. But is there anybody in the room? And by the way, this is me, okay? That you would just say, like, I need freedom from any, I need freedom from a cage. Is there anyone in the room like me who needs, I fear rejection. That is one of my biggest fears in life is I fear rejection. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why, but that's one of my things that I need to be set free of and I'm being set free from it. But is there anybody else in the room with me that would say, there are some things I need the Lord to heal on the inside of me so that I can become everything that I actually am. Is there anybody in the room? Yeah, just go ahead and throw your hands up so I can pray over you. Yeah, awesome, 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 awesome. Thank you. Lord, I pray right now over every hand that was raised, including mine, I pray that you would get us out of the cage that we made. There might be legitimate reasons why we built the cage. It might've been to protect us. Maybe we built the cage because we prayed something of you. And because of our fear of your answer, we, we caged up a piece of us. I know this happened to me in my life. Maybe we've caged ourselves up because of an experience we have with other people. Maybe it's an experience we had when we were a kid. Whatever it is, I say to you today, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. From the inside out, from the outside in, body, soul, spirit, emotions, in your mind, in your health, physically, all of it. Everything has been redeemed in the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Revelation, John has a vision and he says, I saw before me a lamb who appeared to have been slain, but he was alive. And as they're questioning who is worthy to take the scroll and read its contents, they begin to see it's the lamb, the lamb. He is the one who is worthy. Man, I wish, I wish you could, I hope you feel this like I do. I wish you could understand the magnitude of what happened within your existence by way of a man from Galilee who spent 30 years as a nobody so that in three years he could reveal the kingdom to us and do what we could not do that was caused by our rejection of the same God that became us. That's how God answered our rejection. God answered our rejection of him by rejecting our rejection of him. When we said no to God, God became us so that he could say yes from our side of the equation. This is God. This is how we know love. When you were running from God, a hundred percent of the time when you were running, the only thing you were doing when you thought you were running from God was running straight into the arms of a father who's been waiting on the front porch since the day you went home and never lost sight of you. This, this is the gospel. This is what I'll give the rest of my life to make sure as many people as I possibly can tell know that this is the gospel. It is not what happens when you die. It's what happens when you live. It's not about dying to get to glory. It's about living in the glory that is within you that was there before you were ever formed in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So God, I pray that we'll give you the reward of your suffering by living without a caged mentality, without living like an Egyptian slave mentality. We're not slaves anymore. We're free people destined for the promised land. We're not slaves, we're free, we're whole. So I declare wholeness over you in every way. If you're sick today, if you're carrying a disease today, if you're carrying something that you've been carrying for years, I speak this to you, I speak healing over you right now in Jesus' name. Not just to you, I speak healing to those connected with you that you are praying healing over right now. I speak healing to flow out of this room and into every body represented in this place, including extended. I speak healing over it right now. I pray over Gabrielle's dad. I just feel like I need to pray over this. I pray over Gabrielle's dad right now in Jesus' name. I speak to the cancer within him and I say, you are not allowed anymore. I speak healing over him. I pray that you would find him where he is right now. And I pray that you would grip him with the love of God. I pray that the wrath of God would begin to fall on his body and make everything that isn't designed to be there illegal in Jesus' name. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, I love you. There's no place I'd rather be. It's in your name. Amen.